you all for taking time out of your Sunday where you could be doing all sorts of things like sitting down and licking your lips over a jolly Sunday lunch or anything else. But you have chosen to come and to hear, uh, and I hope to speak as well, about prayer. And I think my experience, and I spend a lot of time on the road and I spend a lot of time um, talking with people about prayer and hearing people speak about their life of prayer is that all around us we have people who uh, are going to church very conscientiously and somehow coming away thinking I can't pray or I should be able to pray better or I've never quite got the hang of this prayer business and it always makes me very sad when I hear people say this because when I listen to them and I get to them to talk and to say, well, tell me what happens when you pray or tell me what happens when you try to pray. And they talk about distractions and they talk about, they, they, they can't find the words and they don't know what to say and they're sitting there trying to have holy thoughts and all that's coming into them is, you know, has the cat been wormed and, and have I put the bins out and I've got to write this email to somebody and I've got to go and pick my son up, you know, from his football uh, at five o'clock or whatever it may be. And I say to them, so what makes you think that's not prayer? <laughs> Big revelation. And I remind them of something that Julian of Norwich says. God is grateful when we remember him. What? How could that be possible? How could God possibly be grateful for anything, let alone something so minimal as, I just remembered he existed? You know, God appears to be satisfied with very, very little. He's just glad we turned up, you know? And thank God, thank the Lord fasting. And I say this after nearly 50 years of religious life. Thank God, prayer is not, emphatically not, a performance-related activity. If you think you are rubbish at prayer, join the merry throng, dear friends. Come to a convent and see what rubbish at prayer looks like. <laughs> eh? I had the immense privilege. It was actually probably one of the scariest gigs I ever did. Um, not this last Christmas, the one before, some time ago. Uh, I happened to do, um, the, despite the fact that I'm a Roman Catholic sister, I also, I want to flash my Anglican credentials here. I'm also an honorary canon of the church in Wales. There you are. As my Welsh relations would say, there's posh. So, um, and I do a lot of work at Lambeth Palace because I am the chair of trustees of the wonderful, wonderful community of St Anselm, wonderful international community of young people who come together at Lambeth because Archbishop Justin has invited them to give a year of their time to God. And these are the young people who come and respond. So it's a, it's a wonderful privilege. Anyway, I was kind of hanging around the corridors of Lambeth Palace the way you do. And um, the Archbishop came, you know, walking down the corridor and said, ah, Gemma, just the one. Um, I wondered, would you be interested in giving a retreat to our bishops? <laughs> and I said, what, all of them? 
You've got an awful lot, you know, far more than we have. He said, no, 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 just, just the southern province. Well, that's already at least double, you know, the Catholic bishops. So I said, well, what do you want me to say to them? He said, well, just tell them to look after themselves better and to pray more. And I thought, oh, okay, I can do that. <laughs> but actually, when we did come together, and it was a fabulous privilege and just wonderful to be among such remarkable, remarkable people, because they really were. What struck me more than anything else was their humility, actually. The humility of the bishops of the Church of England, who, at the end of the day, are just men and women before God, trying to pray like the rest of us and struggling with it, like the rest of us. And then, um, I will stop talking about the kind of big gigs I do, but anyway, then I was uh, in Rome last year, and I was doing a job uh, out there, and it was eventually part of a, an audience with the Pope, and along comes Pope Francis, and he's, he, we're all a bit shocked because he's in a wheelchair, and we've never seen him like this before. And he says he's not been very well. And he starts to talk about it and says, you know, this terrible thing that happens to you when you're ill, you're lying there in hospital feeling like death. And some idiot comes along and leans over you and says, never mind, Holy Father. Now you're here. At least you can pray. <laughs> and Pope Francis said, pray? I don't know about you, but I can't pray when I'm feeling ill. I'm, you know, prayer, absolute rubbish, you know. And I thought, do you know, I'm sitting here listening to the Pope telling me that he's rubbish at prayer. <laughs> Isn't that a relief? Isn't that fantastic? You know, he was so kind of open about it. And I thought, in which case, I can actually stop beating myself up, really, when I sit there. And I do remember, of course, that historically, so in... Carmelite monasteries in the 16th century. They didn't have clocks. What they had was these giant egg timers that had half an hour's sand to go through, and then you turned it over, and it was another half hour, and that's how you knew you'd been trying to pray for an hour. And St. Teresa of Avila, you know, one of the, the greatest Western mystic of all time, she used to get so fed up during her prayer hour that she would shake the timer <laughs> to try and make the sand go through faster, you know? And I just, I, again, I find that such a relief that the great mystics also got ants in their pants and also got fidgety. So, you know, that's, that's where I'm coming at on prayer generally. But I want to share with you a little bit about what I have learned, both experientially and theoretically about prayer. And most of it I've learned from a 16th century Basque soldier who turned into a pilgrim, who turned into a priest, who turned into the founder of the Jesuit order, St. Ignatius of Loyola. My own congregation is called the Congregation of Jesus. We were founded by an English woman, one of the few religious congregations founded by anybody English, um, Mary Ward, who was born in 1585, so we go back a fair way. And she made the first attempt in history to found a religious order um, modelled on the Jesuit model. She got into huge amounts of trouble for being a Catholic in this country at a time when Catholicism was outlawed and was condemned to death down the road at the Guildhall. 
Well, if she thought she was going to get anything better from the Catholic Church, think again, Mary, because she eventually got locked up in a prison by the Inquisition for daring to say that women and men were equal. They didn't like that kind of thing in the Catholic Church. They don't really like it now, but that's an, a whole other conversation we're not going to have right now. But anyway, um, but she herself was, was, felt a deep calling by God to follow in the Ignatian tradition, and that's where I'm coming at you from. But I just want for a moment to unpick that word Ignatian tradition. Because if you had talked, if Ignatius himself walked in here and knew that I was standing up giving a public talk about prayer in the Ignatian tradition, I think he'd be both appalled and deeply mortified. Because he never thought of starting any kind of ism. He never thought of this as being, you know, Ignatian. He just thought of it as a way to help people to meet Jesus. That's what he thought he was doing. To meet Jesus in the scriptures, to meet Jesus in their imagination, to meet Jesus in their deepest desires. And by doing so, to have their life transformed so that they could go out and become transformed transformers in the world. That's my version of what Ignatius was trying to do. I reckon he would have probably been quite pleased with that. But he certainly didn't think of himself as starting any kind of tradition. In the way that we do, we tend to kind of end up narrowing things down and sticking labels on people. And that's where, why people like me talk about the Ignatian tradition as a kind of shorthand. But really, what we're talking about is finding God in all things. So that's a very kind of Ignatian-speak little sentence. Um, because certainly in, in, in the Spain of Ignatius' time in the, and in just in, in the world of Ignatius' time in the 16th century, there was a tendency, which many of us also have, um, to compartmentalise this is the holy bit, and this is the ordinary bit, you know. Now I'm praying, now I'm washing the dishes. Now I'm praying, now I'm playing football. Now I'm praying, now I'm kissing the person I love. And actually, they're one and the same. They're not different compartments. They're not totally separate kind of empires with a wall in between. And so Ignatius was very keen for people to have this very holistic and complete notion of what prayer is. And um, you've got some bits of paper in front of you. One of them's got lots of writing on it like this. And I want to begin with Ignatius's kind of manifesto. This is something that he says in what's called the principle and foundation. It's the kind of... Um, uh, you know what they have in, in firms and things, they have their mission statement. Well, this is his mission statement. God who loves us, creates us, and wants to share life with us forever. That's, you know, we are created, and we're created for a purpose. That's the ba basic line. Our love response takes shape in our praise and honor and service of the God of our life. All the things in this world are also created because of God's love. So everything, nothing excluded, nothing. Nothing created, excluded from God's love. 
and they become a context of gifts presented to us so that we can know God more easily and make a return of love more readily. So we are created and we are in relationship with everything else that's created for a purpose, which is knowing God, loving God, serving God. As a result, it therefore follows. We show reverence for all the gifts of creation and collaborate with God in using them so that by being good stewards, we develop as loving persons in our care for God's world and its development. Again, nothing excluded from that love relationship. But if we abuse any of these gifts of creation or on the contrary, take them as the center of our lives, so ingratitude on the one hand, idolatry on the other, we break our relationship with God and hinder our growth as loving persons. This, by the way, is a modern translation of a rather shorter, pithier thing that Ignatius says, but this is what he's about. In everyday life, then, we must hold ourselves in balance before all created things, insofar as we have a choice and are not bound by some responsibility. Well, like having a husband and, or wife and children, for a start, or having a job that requires things of us. We shouldn't fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or short one. For everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. Our only desire, our one choice should be this. I want and choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. It's a pretty comprehensive manifesto, but I hope by now you've got the picture that, you know, Ignatius is not putting things into categories of value. This is better than that. Two people who made the Ignatian spiritual exercises before making a big choice were Julius Nereri, the first African president of Tanzania, and Garrett Fitzgerald, who was at one point the Taoiseach of Ireland. Both of them were people who knew Ignatian spirituality very well, and they made the Ignatian exercises. Because there would be many people who say, well, of course, it's always better to, you know, to choose poverty, and it's always better to choose humility. You know, we should avoid riches and influence and power at all costs, because that's what Jesus says in the Bible. If you look a little bit more carefully, that's not entirely what Jesus says in the Bible. He doesn't tell everybody to let go of everything and come follow him. He actually called some people within the context of their lives. As far as we know, Joanna wasn't asked to leave Herod's palace. It's probably quite important that there was a disciple of Jesus in that bear garden, you know. As far as we know, he didn't ask the Roman centurion to leave the Roman army. It actually needed some people of God within that army. And both Nereri and Fitzgerald decided that what God was calling them to was the exercise of authority, the exercise of power on behalf of the people. Service washing the feet of the people through the exercise of political power. And God knows who would want to be a politician today, eh? I mean, if you really want humiliation, that's the way to go, my friends, you know? 
Um, so Ignatius is saying something very important here about holding ourselves in balance. And how do we do that? How do we know what that balance is? We know it through prayer. So a quick little vignette of Ignatius himself. He was a soldier and he had huge big dreams of, you know, riches and fame and winning the fine lady and deeds of daring do, the knight in shining armor, doing great things uh, and, and winning the fair hand of the, of the lady and all of this. And it all came to grief during the Battle of Pamplona when a cannonball smashed his leg and he was taken home uh, to Loyola to recover. And he, because he didn't want to limp, he made them re-break his leg. No anaesthetic in those days. Ouch. But anyway, he lay there for hours and he got very bored. And he was very much addicted to the kind of blockbuster novels of his day, which were the Spanish romances. So things like the tales of Don Quixote and things by Cervantes and people. And he said, have you got any of those kinds of books? I reckon his sister-in-law, Madalena, had been wanting to pin him down for some time because stuffing all the books in a cupboard, she said, oh, no, we haven't got any books like that, Ignatius, dear. So sorry, but how about a life of Christ and a life of the saints? We've got those. And he was so bored that in the end he started to read these. You know, needs must when the devil drives. And he began to notice something. He noticed that reading the romances was much more exciting because it was kind of, you know, rip-roaring tales and all of that. It was a much more exciting read at the time. But it left him kind of flat. In the aftermath, there was kind of nothing there. There was no substance. Reading the life of Christ, reading the lives of the saints, was a tougher read because it was frankly less interesting at one level. You know, not so much killing and kissing of maidens and all that kind of thing. But in the aftermath, when he was kind of lying there, he found himself thinking, imagining, what if I met Jesus like that? What if I had been blind Bartimaeus? What if I'd been Peter? What if I'd been the woman of Samaria? What would that meeting have been like? What would it be like to meet him, actually meet him, hear him, see him, touch him? And then he found himself thinking about St. Dominic, St. Francis, the other saints in the books. What, they did great deeds. They did great things for Christ. What have I done for him? And he began to find that the aftermath, as it were, the after ripples of reading those kinds of literature stayed with him. And that became the basis, ultimately, of his teaching on discernment. And on his very firm belief that actually our imagination can be a wonderful way into prayer. Now, some people have a problem with this, A, because they say, oh, I've got no imagination. And when I say to them, do you remember the last time you were at the dentist's? And they go, ouch. And I say, you've got an imagination. <laughs> okay, don't tell me you haven't. Um, but of course, that's all fantasy. You know, we shouldn't be making things up. Well, why not? Because actually what happens when you go into imaginative contemplation, you imagine yourself into a scene, is that... Actually, 
it, the scene itself takes over and it takes you often in places you weren't expecting, but what it does is it engages you at two levels. Well, several levels really. The level of our deep desires and the level of our emotions. And if you remember the story in Luke of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, they're chatting about their lived experience and they're really struggling to make sense of their lived experience because it doesn't make any sense to them. And along comes Jesus and they don't recognize him, but he doesn't say to them, oh, well, this means that and that means that and this is why. What he does is he opens up the scriptures to them. And by reflecting on their lived experience in the light of scripture, they make better sense of their lived experience and better sense of the scriptures. And where do they test their response? Didn't our hearts burn within us? They test their response by their emotional, their affective reaction. They know that their heart begins to burn. They actually are engaged at the level of their emotions. And that's how Ignatius himself began to pray and realized that this was a way that could help people to pray in a way that was real, that got into the parts, as they say, that other prayer doesn't reach. And also, he began to trust deep desires. Now, he'd had some desires that really were not terribly worth it. He looked at his dreams of being a great knight, having a great name, winning the great lady, being you know, up there, the star of stage and screen, as it were. And he realized that that was really not a terribly worthwhile thing to spend your life aiming at. But when he looked deep, 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 what he realized was he wanted to love and be loved absolutely and he found that love in Jesus Christ and therefore he wanted to show that love express that love in changing the world and he lived in a time of immense political and social and religious upheaval just on the cusp of the Protestant Reformation and um, Spain beginning to open out its colonies in the new world, the discovery of a whole part of the world nobody in Western Europe even knew existed. And he wanted to be part of that. And that was a deep desire. So he began to take imagination seriously, he began to take his desires seriously. He went off into a slightly kind of weird hippie phase. He went off and lived in a cave and he let his hair grow long and his nails and everything else. And he went a bit weird, quite frankly. And um, he was desperate for somebody to show him the way. And he prayed at one point to God, please send me anyone, someone to show me. Even if you send me a dog, I'll follow it. Well, God did not send a Labrador. In the end, God sent an elderly laywoman who lived nearabouts, a peasant woman, who had a reputation for being a holy woman. And like most women of that sort of age, she said, now, young man, the first thing you need to do is have a proper bath <laughs> and wash and cut your hair and clip your nails and have a proper meal and, you know, stop being so silly and then we'll talk. So she kind of reminded him that we actually, we don't have a body we are a body, and what we do in and with our body matters, and it affects our prayer. That's something else that Ignatius learned. And therefore, we have to take our bodies seriously, our physical nature seriously, 
and actually we can use our senses to pray with. Ah, big newsflash. We can touch and taste and smell and see and feel. And those are things God gives us in order to come closer to him. So he put that into his tradition, as it were. If you whip this paper round, oddly enough, one of the first people I quote is not remotely a Jesuit or anything else. He's a, a, a Trappist monk, uh, the American Thomas Merton, who is one of the great um, leaders and teachers of prayer of the late 20th century. And this is what he says. In prayer, we discover what we already have. You start from where you are and you deepen what you already have and you realize you're already there. We already have everything, but we don't know it and don't experience it. Everything has been given to us in Christ. All we need is to experience what we already possess. You know that line from T.S. Eliot? We had the experience, but missed the meaning. And so Ignatius is doing the same thing. He's inviting us to look at our lived experience, in particular through a prayer called the examen, comes from the Spanish word for examination. Used to be called the examination of conscience. Very bad title for a way of praying, because basically the subtext to that was, oh God, where did I goof today? <laughs> and actually a rather depressing kind of list of failures. No, not surprising. I mean, I was taught how to do this as an 18-year-old novice. And as soon as I was out of the novitiate, whoop, that was the end of the examination of conscience. Thank you very much. You know, oh, Lord, here is a list of how I failed you today. Hallelujah. Not. You know? And actually, people did some work on this examination of conscience. And um, a wonderful American Jesuit called... Um, George Ashenbrenner, wrote about it being the examination of consciousness, the prayer of awareness. How aware am I? How switched on am I to what's going on in my life? Simple question. How am I feeling? How am I reacting? Why am I reacting like this? What's going on? What is God showing me? How tuned in am I to God's presence in my life? Or have I been spending today on automatic pilot? And a lot of us do that, not out of malice, but because we're just so busy. A very wise spiritual director who I was lucky enough to have accompany me for a long time, her father was a Glaswegian miner, and he used to say rather gnomically, if you're too busy, you're too busy. <laughs> well, you know, actually, he had a point. And I spend most of my life being too busy. I'm too busy to eat. I'm too busy to sleep. You know, I'm cutting corners all the time. And then I come downstairs and I find that I've got my jumper on inside out, you know, because I haven't actually taken it, or I've got two different socks on, because I haven't, I've been in such a hurry to kind of get up and get out. And, and many of us do this with our day. And the examine is a way of just slowing down for a bit. And here's a little advert. There's a fantastic free app you can get on your telephone called Reimagining the Examine. And it just takes you through on a 30-day cycle. It takes you through a kind of 10 or 15 minute. Let me help you to just do a review of the day. And uh, a very good friend of mine who, like me, is an academic but lives in rather 
um, more helpful climate to do this. He comes home at the end of a day from a long day, you know, lecturing and all of this, and he fixes himself a G&T, and he goes and sits on his balcony, and he makes the examine, and it lasts as long as the G&T. <laughs> That's as good a way of praying as, I don't like gin, actually, but honestly, as any I know. Huh? Because it's about getting to know yourself and to know yourself before God, and to be in conversation, as Ignatius talks to us about, you know, talk to God as one friend to another. It's no more complicated than that. And the idea is that by doing this, we would get to know ourselves better, and therefore possibly to anticipate some of our less fortunate reactions, he talks about the spiritual exercises, which is like the kind of little guidebook he has for making a retreat. He talks about these exercises as their purpose being to help us to rid ourselves of disordered attachments. Where it talks in the principle and foundation of being at balance, being at equilibrium. When the balance isn't quite right, and, you know, disordered attachments, they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. I spent 25 years working with addicts in Holloway Prison. Uh, a very, very high proportion of the women in there were addicted to um, substances of one sort or another or to alcohol and had committed some quite terrible crimes as a result. You know, by the grace of God, most of us are not grappling with those kinds of addictions, but... Um, Workaholism, it's an addiction. The addiction to approval, the addiction to playing things safe, never to put in your foot out of line just in case, you know? Or the desperate desire to, to, to look good, to be attractive, and making the criteria for how we judge that. You know, our young people are under so much pressure from this. Poor kids. Really, it's miserable being a teenager now because they are absolutely at the mercy of, you know, ticks and swipes and all this. You know, do you approve? How many friends have you got? How many, uh, you know, yeses or approves or what have you have you got? It's so hard for them to believe in themselves. So, so hard. That's an addiction a disordered attachment. So what can help us to actually see ourselves as God sees us? Whoa, there's a challenge, you know? And where do we get, where do we get our best sense of who we are and how it, we could be who we are, except in God's eyes? Ignatius, later on, went to study theology in Paris and it was a very, very solidly Augustinian theology that he learned. It's a rather fascinating quirk of history that Ignatius of Loyola and John Calvin were at university at the same time doing the same course. Well, they got rather different things out of it, shall we say, you know, uh, putting it mildly. Um, I often think of that when I look at my students and I think, my goodness, they could be getting completely different things from this. And well, I, I've got two quotations from Augustine on your page. He talks uh, to his 
people in the church at Hippo preparing to receive the Eucharist. You are the mystery that is placed on the Lord's table. You receive the mystery that is yourself. To that which you are, you will respond, Amen. Be what you see. Receive what you are. Well, dear friends, I could spend an hour unpacking what that all means. But here's Augustine saying, in the Eucharist, when the priest says, the body of Christ, he's lifting up the body of Christ, but he's also lifting you up. Because in receiving the body of Christ, you receive your truest self, because you receive yourself as Christ sees you, as Christ knows you, as Christ wants to be intimate with you. I always think of Augustine as the patron saint of desire. You know, I mean, he had a fairly kind of rip-roaring background himself and, of course, was the one who wrote that marvellously honest prayer, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. (laughs) And um, there's a lovely little line in one of his homilies that goes like this. The whole life of a good Christian is holy desire. What you desire, you cannot see yet. But the desire gives you the capacity and that, that bold is mine, because I think that's the key in this little quotation. The desire gives you the capacity, so that when it does happen that you, dis- you see, you may be fulfilled. This is our life, to be exercised by desire. Hey folks, isn't that fabulous? Most of us are terrified of being exercised by desire, in case our desires run away with us. And we're Christians, so we never talk about sex. You know, just in case. Um, And I'm a nun. What do I know about it? Well, actually, rather a lot, to be frank. Because if you've been celibate all your life, you know about desire. And you know about disordered attachments. And you know about the struggle. But you also know that, you know, desire is where God touches us. To be exercised by desire. Because the desire gives us the capacity So one of the things that Ignatius keeps saying throughout his spiritual exercises is any time that we pray, we need to name what we desire. We need to name it to God. Now, he's not saying this because in some way God is in need of a news bulletin. Hey, God, here's something you don't know. What I desire is, you know. Name, he says, the grace that you're asking for. We're not asking it in order to give God information. We're asking it for our own sake so that we can actually begin to learn to listen to and articulate. Actually, this is the grace I need. And why does he ask us to do this? God does not, God is not capricious. God does not play with us. You know, when I was little, I'm the bottom of a pile of siblings, and I remember my siblings saying to me, if you ask, you don't get, and if you don't ask, you don't want. And I remember thinking, hang on a second, how does that work? I'm never allowed to ask for anything I want, you know. That's, that's not fair. It took me a long time to work that one out, that it was complete nonsense. But sometimes we operate like this. You know, well, I dare not ask, you know. And what does Jesus say almost every time he meets anyone in the gospel? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want? He gets them to say, not for his sake, but for their sake. And 
one of the things is, once we start to name a desire, to become aware that there is a desire operative in us, my reckoning is, it's not that we're asking for something that maybe if we're very good, God might give us eventually, or if we ask hard enough. It's actually a sign of the grace already operative within us. You know, when, tragically, as there is now, when there are people looking for survivors of an earthquake, one of the things they do is they take um, infrared machinery and they stick it down through the rubble to see if they can pick up heat signals because that shows that there's a live body down there. They're looking for hot spots. And this is how this works. When we become aware of a desire, a longing that we're asking for God, it's a hot spot. It's because God is already giving us the grace. And he wants to alert us to the fact that that grace is already operative in our lives in some way. And he is giving us the desire so that the desire gives us the capacity to act on that grace and to live it. I said to you that prayer is not a performance-related activity. Well, nor is the Christian life. And we have another quotation uh, there. I'm taking us through fairly rapidly because we've only got a few minutes left. Um, From the cloud of unknowing, another of those great and wonderful and utterly mystifying uh, mystical texts, this time from the wonderful uh, flourishing of English mysticism in the Middle Ages. In the last chapter, it says, it's not what you are, nor what you have been, that God sees with his all-merciful eyes, but what you desire to be. Now, of course, God does know what we are, and God certainly knows what we have been. But what we desire to be, I used to quote this to the women in the prison over and over again. You are not defined by the worst thing you ever did in your life. Yes, you have to acknowledge what you did. And yes, there are and have been consequences, not only for you, but for those that you hurt and for their families. And that's a reality that we have to deal with. But God does not define you. And you are being invited not to define yourself by the worst moment in your life. God is asking you to look at what you want to be, who you want to be. And, you know, even people who'd had a lifetime of sex work and drug trafficking and God alone knows what, had deep desires to be good. I almost never met anybody sane who didn't. And even some of them who were struggling with severe mental health issues also had the desire to be good. So... What God sees is our desire, and that's the level at which he acts, and that's what Ignatius is telling us about prayer. And it's a very, very, it's it's seen and it's lived in a very human framework. The last thing I want to say about Ignatius, well, the penultimate thing I want to say about Ignatius, is that it's a very, very human affair. It's about the basics of our human life. And 
here is something said by a German Jesuit called Karl Rahner, rather a complicated theologian. He had a brother, also a Jesuit, called Hugo. And Hugo said that his job in life was to translate his brother Karl into German. Karl actually wrote in German, but it was a German that no German could understand. And, well, we've got a German here. I don't know what Annetta would say about whether, you know, it's easier. Uh, certainly, he's jolly difficult sometimes to understand in English. But actually, what Karl writes about prayer is amazingly simple and very accessible. And he says this, that which is amazing and even confusing in the life of Jesus is that it remains completely within the framework of everyday living. In him, concrete human existence is found in its most basic and radical form. The first thing that we should learn from Jesus is to be fully human. And Ignatius invites us in what he writes and says about prayer, and in particular through his spiritual exercises, to learn to value being fully human. You know how we say to people, oh, I'm only human as if that's some sort of excuse for bad behaviour. What? No such thing as only human. It's a fabulous thing to be human. God himself chose to be human. You can't get much better than that, you know? And therefore, every aspect... You know, do we think that Jesus only saved the world in those few hours that, we hung on the, that he hung on the cross? Wrong. He saved the world by living in it. He was saving the world when he was blowing his nose. He was saving the world while he was asleep. While he was washing his own feet. When he was banging a nail into a piece of wood. When he was laughing with his mates. When he had a stomachache. <laughs> he was saving the world simply by living, human, inhabiting human life. And therefore invites us to inhabit our human life, even at its most banal and trivial levels, with a sense of God is with me, God is in here with me. In the last one minute, I want to invite you to have a look at the piece of paper that has a diagram on it. The Ignatian exercises are a form of retreat that can be done in a very formal sense. You go off to a retreat house and you bury yourself there for a month of kind of silent grappling with God. Uh, that's the kind of hardcore way of doing it. Um, there are sort of shorter versions that you can do in a couple of days. There are, is also a wonderful thing called the retreat in daily life where you can actually make the Ignatian exercises accompanied by someone else over a period of longer period of time. But they're based on the principal foundation, which is the bit in the blue Sputnik in the middle. God as loving creator, all creation connected for a loving purpose. God's gift of freedom, inviting us to choose what best allows that purpose to be fulfilled in me. Whether that means I'm going to go off and be an astronaut or I'm going to look after sheep for the rest of my life, or I'm going to empty bins in the streets of London, whatever it may be. And the exercises are divided into four weeks, which are not units of seven days, but if you like, phases. And week one is about getting to know myself as lovingly created. But however much you spend time with people going, hello trees, hello sky, how lovely it all is, they eventually come back to you and say, yes, but there's a problem. 
we don't work as we should. There's something in me that doesn't quite respond as I feel I would like to. And that's therefore knowing, getting to know myself at a really radical level as a vulnerable and willing and sinful human being. Why? Not to spend my time groveling, but so that I can experience amazing grace. That wonderful hymn written by a slave trader who came to realize what an appalling thing he had done in his life. Amazing grace. I once was lost and now I'm found. You know, we don't get that unless we really know our sins profoundly. But the good news is that I discover myself to be a loved and forgiven sinner. And there is no better news, no more liberating news than that. And having discovered that, I find within myself a desire to be where Christ is, to be with him. And so I go on the road with Jesus from the beginning of his life, right through to the end of his life on earth, to look at the Jesus way of being human, the Jesus way of making choices, to cooperate and grow in freedom. And by contemplating him, you know how babies, they look at you and they imitate the look they see on your face. That's how they learn to laugh or smile. And if you ever, sometimes I, I look at elderly couples and they look more like brother and sister than husband and wife because they've got so used to imitating each other's facial expressions that they've taken on the same expression. That's what happens when we contemplate Jesus. We get to kind of look like him and we learn to follow through the consequences of his choices. His choice not to be the king of kings in the sense of a conqueror of the world, but to be the king who washes feet, who is a king who gives himself totally, so total self-gift. And we find ourselves wanting to make an offering that is similar. Everything that I have and I am came from you. I give it back to you so that you can use it for the good of the world. And that takes us into the fourth week. You have given all to me, now I return it. Again, as Eliot says, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And we return to the place we started from because it's very much a dynamic, circular movement, and we see who we are for the first time. I wish I had another hour to talk to you about Ignatius. I don't because I want to give you time to take on board this tsunami of information that I've thrown at you, but also to think a little about what has touched you, what stays with you in what you've heard. Maybe as a, oh, wow, I never knew that. Or maybe, oh, golly, I really don't agree with that, because you're allowed to say that. Or maybe, mm, I'd like to explore that a bit more. Or that fits with what I've lived and what I've experienced. So. Let's me stop, big moment of relief all round, and um, you have a chance to kind of sit and think about it and maybe have a natter to your next door neighbour, but I'll leave the dynamics of that to Sophie. Thank you very much.